Hello, hello. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. Our show is dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, environmental degradation here in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas that 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed our issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal-based income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Steve Omohundro has been a scientist, professor, author, software architect, and entrepreneur doing research in natural and artificial intelligence. He has degrees in physics and mathematics from Stanford and a PhD in physics from UC Berkeley. He created the think tank software systems to analyze the social impact of intelligence systems and to develop approaches that are provably safe and beneficial for humanity. Welcome to the show, Steve. Glad to be here. And uh, yeah, so it's two things to kind of address today. I think that uh, the major topics, AI uh, and the blockchain, a lot about decentralization, how it may, you know, uh, relate to the ideas of, of, of George. But let's let's talk first about your opinions on AI and AI, AI risk. What would be your, uh, you know, I guess, quick summary of, of how you feel about AI risk and the danger it poses? Well, so I've been working in AI for probably about 30 years, and uh, early on I felt like, oh, it was only a, po- a positive. You know, eliminate human drudgery, solve all kinds of problems in the world, it's all great. And about 15 years ago, some of the systems I was working on uh, had the property that they would modify themselves. And I began to analyze and ask, well, what happens if a system repeatedly changes itself? How does it end up? How can we be sure that the system we ultimately get still has our original goals and original intents uh, within it. And so that led me down a path of giving a whole bunch of talks and writing a bunch of papers about uh, how do we make sure that AI uh, reflects human values and acts in ways that are beneficial. And I think there are some very big issues there, but there are also a lot of uh, very powerful techniques and ideas for ensuring that kind of an alignment. And fortunately, early on, people were not that interested because AI seemed like, oh, it's you know, hundreds of years away. It's, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, in the last, oh, five to ten years, um, suddenly massive amounts of economic resources, you know, every big tech company is now starting to use AI in everything. And so lots more people are starting to become interested in these issues. And uh, I think they're really essential to the future of the human race um, that if we make the choices properly, I think we can uh, develop societies that really function for everyone, maybe very much along the ideas of Henry George or maybe something, something else. Uh, but if we don't do it right, then I think there's also an opportunity for a lot of uh, negatives to occur. Now, when you talked about the changes that the AI makes to itself, would these be bona fide analogs of mutation in biological systems, or are they not quite as um, prone to the same, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, cumulative mutations that result in vastly different life forms on the planet? Well, that's a really good question. There are a bunch of different approaches to AI. The one that is really succeeding the best right now is something called deep learning that's sort of an artificial neural network. Um, There are other systems that are called uh, genetic algorithms or genetic programming, which try and mimic uh, biological evolution. And they create structures, and sometimes they actually create programs by mutating existing programs, which are working well, and then uh, allowing two programs to have sex with one another and create a new program. And uh, those systems have, have done some very interesting things. They're not currently the best performers, but there are a number of groups uh, sort of exploring that. One of the problems with that is it's very unpredictable. You don't really know what's going to come out. And so the approach that I am more interested in is something where you can very clearly state what the semantics or the meaning of the parts are and have systems which uh, you have very strong guarantees will behave the way that you want to. So a, uh, something you have outlined is an idea that you call the safe AI scaffolding strategy. I want you to go into exactly what the three parts of this strategy are. Sure. Um, right now, there's sort of a, a flurry of activity, people applying especially deep learning to every task you can imagine, you know, face recognition, uh, labeling images on the Internet, uh, controlling robot arms, translating language, and having quite good successes in many of these areas, many of the simple tasks. Uh, these systems are already surpassing human performance. Um, 
But in general, in those systems, you really don't know how they're doing what they're doing. Uh, you've got, you know, maybe a million or a few, you know, tens of millions of neurons, artificial neurons, and they don't really have a meaning that humans today, at least, understand. And so you've built the system, it works, but you don't really know how it's working. And for tasks like translating a sentence or labeling an, an image, that's, that's probably fine. There's no issue there. Once we start using that kind of system, say, for an autonomous vehicle, so you've trained this neural net to drive a car, uh, you know, it's maybe driven a million miles, and maybe it's watched an expert human driver uh, driving, and it's working, it's doing great. Uh, you say, great, let's, you know, put this in all our cars. The trouble is, if it encounters a situation, say a small child throws his ball across the street and runs to get the ball, the car may not have seen that before, and you have no guarantees that it's going to behave appropriately. You want it to stop and not hit the child. And so uh, I think what we're going to need is systems where not only do they do the right thing, but we have very high confidence that they do the right thing. And so how do you do that? So my uh, safe AI scaffolding strategy is to not just you know, pursue the most um, rapid development possible, but rather to take a very a constrained approach where you first build a layer of systems where you have mathematical proofs that they actually do what you want them to, and then you use that system to design the next layer, and that system to design the next layer. And so you get a sort of like the scaffolding for building a building, um, where at each stage you're absolutely sure that what you're doing is, is not going to cause problems. And so um, that's an approach, which uh, I, I think as, as the most prudent uh, to developing Today's systems, you know, they're really not in that, that critical a thing. Maybe the autonomous vehicles is the first one where there's uh, some, some possibility for some damage. But as we go forward, you know, issues of cybersecurity, issues of military weapons, you know, uh, uh, robot soldiers, all those things, uh, these issues are going to become much more important. Yeah, so the first step is, I guess, just limiting it. And, and if you consider it the genie that you have to, you know, show show very reasonable fear of, you're saying the, you know, to keep it in its bottle, it needs to be mathematics, physics, and cryptography. That's that's really the exactly. only that's the only things we can really be sure of is going to keep the genie bottled. Everything else, who knows? Yeah, and so that's sort of for the longer term uh, issue. In the shorter term, we've got all kinds of questions about. Uh, how will these systems integrate into society? How can we ensure that you know workers aren't displaced in a way that's very harmful? Um, and but as we move forward, I, I sort of think of it as coming in three ways. I think what we're in right now is the AI economy, where all the sort of low-hanging fruit uh, in the economic system. You know, people are rapidly trying to automate things. In you know Rio Tinto down in Australia is essentially completely automating the mining process, everything from you know, digging the dirt to uh, transporting the mining uh, to uh, they have completely automated docks now for uh, shipping materials. And so uh, for them, they saw that as an economically valuable thing. They put the resources in, and the system seems to be working. And I think we're going to see that throughout our economy, that the places where you get the most value from being automated, those are going to happen. Second wave, I think, is going to be AI military. We're already starting to see you know, all the major countries' militaries are developing autonomous drones, autonomous vehicles for military purposes, and that introduces a whole new set of issues to you know, make you know, should AI systems be allowed to exert lethal force on their own will, or should there always be a human in the loop, that kind of question. And then the third phase is the one I think you're, you're touching on here, which is as these systems get smarter, um, probably they will get as smart or smarter than humans. Um, what is their role in society? Do we want to treat them as full citizens who can vote? Do they, you know, uh, play the role in, in government? Uh, do we have, does our legal system cover them? All those kinds of questions. And when we start examining those, we need to really think outside the current box and examine um, what the fundamentals underneath uh, the designs of these systems is. Now, I have a question about beings that are coming into existence that may be sentient, may have some sort of uh, moral worth that, that people would apply to them. If you watch Star Trek and you uh, look at data who um, most people would, would empathize with and say, you know, this is a this is a agent that deserves our our consideration and um what what kind of rights do you think that that they should have i mean we're on the show it's the henry george program and we're talking about 
the fact that natural resources, in a sense, ought to rightfully belong uh, to everyone. Do you think that these new intelligences popping into the universe have uh, some sort of rights? How should, how should we deal with this uh, moral conundrum of, of these new minds sort of coming into being? I think that's going to really require us to evaluate the philosophical underpinnings of our legal system. Um, it won't necessarily be, you know, some Android robot that somebody built. Um, lots and lots of people right now are working on tools to enhance human um, behavior. And so uh, intelligence augmentation is a, is a sort of a parallel track to artificial intelligence, IA instead of AI. And so today, a human with, a, with an iPhone is a different creature than a human without an iPhone. Once the iPhone is itself intelligent and the human is maybe offloading more of the thinking to this intelligent device, uh, there may not be any boundary there. And so uh, one of the issues around AIs is that you can make copies of them. And, uh, you know, killing an AI, killing a human is a major horrible thing that is the, probably the dominant issue in um, you know, thinking about ethics uh, in, in a human society. In an AI world, if somebody, if an AI has a backup and you turn off and you kill or turn off one of them, uh, the backup maybe has all the information. And so a lot of the values and issues are very different for that kind of a system. And there may be a, a wide range of systems, like uh, systems that no one would say are sentient. You know, you've got your um, you know, box-packing robot or something. You know, Amazon has a whole bunch of robots which are, you know, moving around items for, for shipping. And uh, should those robots have rights? Probably, I would say, no one would say yes. Um, we have a sort of parallel in today's world in thinking about animals. Probably nobody says mosquitoes have rights. You know, nobody, except maybe, maybe some Buddhist sects feel that, you know, all, all living beings are, are sentient, but most people have no qualms about smashing a mosquito, and they, in fact, they feel like mosquitoes are negative, and they'd be happy if mosquitoes disappeared. On the other hand, uh, for many people in this country, dogs are fully sentient beings. Dogs have rights. If someone is, you know, torturing a dog, that that is an ethically terrible thing, and lots of people, myself included, think that person should go to jail and that, that should be limited. Uh, so I think we begin to see a little bit of the spectrum of both of intelligence and of uh, maybe sentience. You know, we get into fuzzy areas where science is not currently able to make these differentiations. I think as AI systems get more powerful and are developed, we're going to learn a lot about um, what we mean by these, these different topics. And uh, I totally agree with you that the ethical issues are going to be enormous. I mean, there's so many different you know ways you can get lost in the weeds or just you know just just fall down rabbit holes. Yeah, I guess there's a way it seems from the outside of just how do these appear to us, and then how do we even know if they if they would suffer? Is there is AI capable of suffering in a way that that we would even understand? And it's it it seems to to a degree impossible to know. And to, to ask these questions, there's a lot of things we'll never quite know, but. Uh, I, I, do you have any opinions on on basically the you know phenomenology of of consciousness that that we have to worry about? I think those are really really interesting questions. There's starting to be you know solid science around it. Lots of people have a lot of intuitions around it. Um, I have a friend who has the sort of opinion that a pro program running in a digital computer can never feel pain. That that's his his uh, attitude. Uh, whereas he feels that if it were in a different kind of hardware, that somehow maybe that would be important. Um, some people think quantum mechanics is somehow important. I, um, uh, you know, I'm interested to explore various different ideas, but uh, I, I, I think it's really too early to know about that. Um, the area where I think for, you know, I'm primarily interested in the human side of things. Um, you know, there are, surprising to me, there are a bunch of people who say, you know, if the robots are better than the humans, then the humans don't deserve to exist. Well, I'm sorry. For, from my perspective, we are creating this technology. We should be creating it for the benefit of humans. And uh, if we create something that we want to include in our ethical sphere, that's something we have to do carefully and with great uh, thought. But that for me, at least, uh, I think humans are the, the thing that we should be, are, are, are the, the creatures we should be worrying most about. I mean, that's, I guess, and that's that's where we can actually be, you know, sure of is the effect, or at least, you know, focus on is the effect it has in the world. And in a way, you'll be releasing this, this genie, and if you keep it in the bottle and keep it safe. But if you have it out in the world, we really need to be sure of, 
it has values that reflect the values we have. And I, I guess that seems to be a big part of the second part of your scaffolding strategy is imbuing human values and ethics into uh, into AI and uh, making sure that, yeah, it, it can interact cooperatively with with the values of our society. Uh, how How do you treat such a challenge like that? Well, so if you look at human society... Um, the ways that, I mean, there have been 27, at least 27 other species of humans, um, all of whom have gone extinct except us. And uh, very interesting questions about how that happened and why that happened. But um, one of the reasons is that our branch of humans, Homo sapiens, developed ways to cooperate with one another and ways to be social and interact in society that are far beyond what any other creature is capable of. And we did that by uh, two things, by having uh, internal changes. So we developed one of our unique things is we developed the social emotions, things like guilt and envy, where we are very sensitive to how other people feel. We're empathetic. We have mirror neurons. And we are sort of predisposed to um, cooperating with one another. Uh, we have some parts of the population who are sociopathic, who don't feel empathy and who don't necessarily want to cooperate. And um, many people are very disturbed by those, those people. Uh, so, so we have this internal part, and we have an external part. We've created uh, institutions of laws, of money, uh, and of ways and police forces and ways of structuring society so that even if somebody does not behave in a pro-social, uh, empathetic, positive way you know, with the rest of the group, uh, there are still these external forces that keep them at bay. And I think exactly the same two mechanisms are going to be necessary for AI systems. Both we want to build them with uh, values that are aligned with human values. They should not kill people, for example. Um, you know, Isaac Asimov wrote the series, The Three Laws of Robotics, um, which the point of that, he wrote a whole bunch of stories showing how if you took those three laws and you know, really did them seriously, all kinds of bad things happen. So in some sense, it was sort of a way to show that t if you make your rules too simplistic, you don't get the outcomes that you want. Uh, so I think we have to be very, very careful about the values that we put into these systems. And not everybody's going to put them in there, right? I mean, maybe every, every company in America does a really great job. Well, but maybe North Korea decides to build their own AI, and they don't want those values or something like that. So because of that, I believe we also need an external infrastructure, the sort of analog of, for humans, we have, you know, police forces, we have um, the legal system, we have judges, we, and we have jails. We have ways of, of, of punishing bad behavior. Uh, and, and we have a, a, an extensive body of law, which uh, keeps growing as the, the conditions of society change. The law adapts to try and control it. Well, I think all of those things also need to be extended to AI systems. Uh, and it's a little hard to start doing that now because we don't know how powerful they're going to be, and we don't know when they're going to be powerful. And uh, humans controlling, say, an army of AI or something can exert uh, probably large amounts of power. Uh, we're seeing right now, just the past few months, huge amounts of cyber warfare going on, both at the level of hacking into machines and also, you know, all this whole stuff about fake news and man manipulating media and all that kind of thing. Both of those are probably going to grow uh, exponentially, and AI systems will be benefit will be able to uh, help people do do hacking much better, able to help them create fake news that's very difficult to determine. Before the show, we were talking a little bit about um, artificial uh, systems that simulate um, famous people saying certain things that, that they didn't actually say. And so just because you see a video or an image or an audio of somebody in the very near future, that's not going to be good evidence that that really happened. And so I think we need uh, an infrastructure, external infrastructure, which enables us to tell what's true, uh, to you know, try and stamp out deception, and enables us to control systems which are not behaving according to uh, the laws that we, we want. So one of the most antisocial behaviors is probably war. Uh, conflict, oftentimes over natural resources, uh, including territory, oil, things of that nature. And I wonder about a world in which intelligence is rapidly increasing and the inputs to uh, augmenting intelligence becoming an important factor in um, you know, crea creating ever more intelligent uh, AI. And do you think that just like Asimov's rules, or I've, you know, I've seen uh, others come up with their own rules that they think AI should have, 
do you think why don't we just consider the idea that um, AI should regard uh, natural resources in, as in some ways belonging to everybody, or at least we all have an equal right to them. Um, if you're wanting to create a situation in which you're creating as much intelligence in the universe as possible, you wouldn't want to have some AIs that are more intelligent merely because they hog more resources versus ones that use relatively little resources but are quite an intelligent as a result. Do you, do you have any reaction to the idea of maybe, uh, if I'm not using this term correctly, tell me, but hard coding uh, such a, a, a resource sharing rule within um, AI? So I, I think it's a really critical and really important issue. I mean, we only need to look at human history to see most wars are fought over resources, right? Um, and uh, societies, you know, the Henry George idea of, uh, in some sense, that land is part of the human commons and that the increase in the value of land due to the actions of society really should be distributed to the whole society. That makes sense. I've, I've heard other people sort of similar line say that uh, energy is also part of the commons, or at least, uh, yeah, I, I guess both, uh, you know, sunlight and, uh, you know, uh, petrochemicals, all those kinds of things, um, that, that uh, really the benefit of those should not accrue to individuals, should accrue to the whole society, and maybe even intellectual property, maybe intellectual property. So uh, some argue that you should eliminate, you know, today we, we tend to tax income, and, uh, you know, in, if you're doing things rationally, you should tax what you want less of. And generally, you know, societies want more income. So it's sort of so income tax is sort of a silly choice. Uh, Henry George, I think, made some really good uh, arguments for um, the land value tax and maybe also including an energy tax and an intellectual property tax. And that those taxes could potentially eliminate all other taxes and that it would uh, incentivize a society to uh, do the things that, that uh, you know, that, that maybe would be better. And uh, one of the nice things about having more intelligence in the system is that you can um, focus more on what are the outcomes that you want and use intelligent systems to figure out the best way to get them. There's uh, one model for a future government is called Futarchy by uh, the economist Robin Hanson. And the idea is that the population should not be voting on particular policies. Like today, you know, a bond measure comes up. Should we issue a bond for $2 billion for rebuilding the roads or something like that? Well, most citizens have no clue whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, what they know about is they don't want potholes in the roads, and they want good schools, and they have some relative value for those. So you should really have the citizenry voting on what outcomes they want, and you should have experts deciding sort of what the best way to achieve those outcomes are. When you have human experts, there's always the opportunity for uh, corruption and, you know, people sort of self-dealing, that kind of thing. One of the potential great virtues of having AI systems in there is that, first of all, they can ma probably make better decisions than humans would. But you can also uh, vet exactly how they made their decisions and ensure that there's no corruption there. And so, like today, our politicians, typically during some kind of a campaign season, they come out and they say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Population votes for them. And then they're in office. They don't actually have to do what they said. And so we have a very loose connection between uh, the intentions of a population and the actual you know, behavior of our politicians. Uh, if politicians are... Uh, monitored more carefully by potentially autonomous systems. I actually think every politician should wear body cams and record everything they do, and that that should be part of the, the public's sort of uh, scrutiny of, of what their politicians are doing. Uh, ultimately, as AI systems get smarter, um, we can have um, AI incorporated in more of the legal process and in the uh, governance process in a way that is more accountable to the population. And so I think um, there's you know really positive possibilities there. So you're describing a lot of you know possibilities of AI serving as an oracle, which is still part of this constrained safe system. You ask it questions, gives you answers. Uh, and I, I guess when we're talking more, I mean, I guess the, the the real thing, which I think is just so scary and and such a full potential, but so scary, just how do we define these these values? And we see when we have brains that are programmed for cooperation, we still have have struggled 
to just kind of get basic ideas of sharing uh, to be agreed upon by people and avoid war. It's It still happens. What are the chances that not only can we convince our own brains built for this, but how how optimistic are you that it's even possible to uh, create new brains in a way that will have values that are compatible with us? Do you think it's... Yeah, you... I think it's a really central uh, question. There are, I mean, the philosophers have been thinking about this, these issues for, you know, 2,000 years or something, um, and uh, there are some wonderful books trying to characterize uh, the best of, of human values. But, of course, different societies, different religions have different values. And so, um, uh, and so it certainly is a challenge uh, sorting those out. And I don't think the way it's going to work is some scientists in a lab in the basement in Palo Alto are going to decide these are humanity's values and instill those for all time. Uh, I think it needs to be an incremental process, and that's sort of uh, another motivation for the, the safe AI scaffolding strategy, is that early on we only have the coarsest idea of what our values are. And society is going to be changing. You know, both as AIs come in, um, even the questions that are being asked are going to change, and humans are going to change in response. Um, already, you know, Alexa, the, the uh, Amazon Echo uh, device is in many homes, and uh, kids love it. They really love interacting with it. Um, but it's changing the way uh, kids interact because uh, the Amazon Echo does not require you to say please or thank you. And so kids tend to adopt a commanding voice in talking to it. And many parents you know, love the fact that their kids like playing with this thing, but they're uh, starting to become horrified when they talk to their friends or to adults using the same commanding voice that they use with the, uh, with the Echo. And so um, I think that humans are going to change as these systems, as we start interacting with systems more, and um, society is going to change as these systems become more integrated with it. And so we today uh, can't even imagine some of the ethical issues that are going to arise. So I think what we have to do is not sort of choose the one and only final ethical uh, set of issues. I mean, some we know about. Um, you know, we can take today's law books about, uh, you know, uh, murder is illegal, whereas self-defense is legal. You know, those kinds of refinements and definitions, certainly we should be encoding those. But I think we uh, want to have a system which can be upgraded and uh, uh, changed as we move forward. So how do you do that? And how do you choose whose values are there? Um, today, that's what um, societies do that, you know, do that kind of thing, either by electing representatives uh, or by direct election. And so I think voting processes are really, really central because they are a mechanism for getting a bunch of people with possibly very different values and very different ideas, different things that they care about, to come together and feel like they've all been fairly represented in making a choice for the group as a whole. One of the things I'm very interested in are uh, improved and newer mechanisms for voting. And uh, we talked a little bit about blockchain and some of the cryptocurrencies. One of the great uses for blockchain technologies is it enables a kind of cryptographic voting where every person is um, guaranteed they have an assurance uh, that their vote has been properly counted unlike we have today necessarily with voting machines where there's you know, persistent uh, uh, issues of maybe there's fraud, maybe people are hacking it, maybe people, you know, all those kinds of questions. So there are cryptographic techniques which are well-studied but not yet very well implemented, uh, which enable people's votes to be counted and for them to be sure that their votes are counted, for nobody else to know what their vote was, and for the integrity of the whole system uh, to be checkable by the, by the society. So all those properties are there, and there are several groups working to develop implementations of that on a blockchain called Ethereum, which is sort of like, so Bitcoin is, is a blockchain which enables digital money. Ethereum enables uh, contracts between people, little programs that run in a way that everybody uh, has guarantees on it. And so some of those programs can implement um, voting in a way that's uncorruptible as long as the underlying blockchain isn't corrupted. You mentioned uh, that you don't want people sitting in basements, garages in Silicon Valley writing up what these uh, rules are. And I'm reminded of how we got the, um, you know, the rules that we have in this country that protect uh, minorities from... Uh, Laws and rules that, uh, yeah, that, that would. Be, I mean, it's called it's called the Bill of Rights, right? So, uh, yeah. it doesn't matter if the majority uh, wants slavery; you can't 
have slavery. So to, to, to what degree do you think it's important that, no, we, we should just let some geniuses sit down and say, these ought to be the, the rules that, you know, we're the founding fathers of these AI. And uh, this is just going to be hard coded into their, their systems. And it doesn't matter how many people vote and say, we, you know, we want something that's morally wrong, like, like slavery, uh, to, to, to be a value of, of AI. That's a really interesting question. There's actually, just in the last few years, there's been a, a really interesting innovation in voting called quadratic voting. I won't go into how it works, but there's a, a lot of um, things on the Internet about it, uh, which um, tries to address uh, within the voting system uh, the issue of tyranny of the majority. So uh, with quadratic voting, if the majority um, likes something a little bit, but it harms a minority who cares a lot, uh, the system can sort of deal with that. And interestingly, it turns out that beehives, when they make decisions, they use an analog of quadratic voting um, to, say, choose where the beehive is going to go next um, so that it sort of meets all the needs of, of the, the different bees. Uh, but I totally agree that that is a huge, huge issue. Um, you know, you've said a few times hard coding. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's a bit of a fantasy that um, once you have a piece of software, um, you know, that software can make other software. And, you know, unless you've designed it very, very carefully, you may have built rules into your software, but that may, those rules may not apply to the software that that software creates. And so the, even the issue of is it possible to have some kind of a constraint or a rule or a value uh, in the system that will be there forever and never change, um, that is a very, very difficult technological challenge, which I don't think there are good solutions for at the moment. Right. It just seems that, uh, you know, game theory ensues, right? If, if you, the AI who are selfish and hoard all the resources may outcompete the AI who uh, stay, you know, they stick with the spirit of the humans that originally created it that wanted everybody to share resources and not have the AI kill humans. So I, I think that those are the kind of scenarios um, people who are conservative about technology uh, worry about. How, how could you uh, allay those fears? Because, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious if AI is just, you know, helping us uh, fill in forms online faster that it's, it's not really a threat. But when you've got AI building software that builds software that builds software, then... Uh, you may have a very serious problem on your hands. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I think the external infrastructure is so critical. One of the sad things about today's uh, technology, you know, we built uh, these amazing things, the Internet, and uh, we have online banking, and we have websites, and we have all this stuff, and it's all, you know, built with scotch tape and sealing wax or whatever. Um, you know, many of our programs have bugs. Um, new bugs are being reported in all of our systems at every level. Hacks are happening at every level. Our Internet system is very insecure. We've got spam and viruses and you know, all this stuff going on. And so and right now we're only dealing with primarily dealing with human adversaries. And so unfortunately, our current sort of uh, digital infrastructure is you know, pretty weak. So I actually think we need a really solid uh, infrastructure that is safe against not just human hackers, but against uh, AI hackers. And there are some moves in that direction. So I, I promoted the, uh, you know, use, using uh, mathematical proof as a tool to develop software, and I'm working in that direction, but uh, it's, it's coming pretty slowly. Um, and so uh, it's a bit of an issue that, like you say, that if we end up with AI arms races, you know, uh, one group, and we, and it doesn't necessarily have to even be driven by the AI. If you uh, think of human human arms races, if you have two uh, civilizations which are battling one another, and one suddenly gets a new technology, whether it's a machine gun or an atomic weapon, something like that, that can dramatically shift the balance of power, and it can lead to more conflict. And so, um, like you say, there's very intricate game theory. And, uh, you know, during the development of uh, uh, atomic weapons and the hydrogen bomb, you know, John von Neumann, a lot of the, the game theory, you know, emerged out of analyzing that kind of situation. And I think we, unfortunately, are probably going to have to really uh, address that very carefully. Um, in particular, you know, uh, 
one of the things that's really challenging with AI military is that um, a small group can potentially buy or develop uh, a large army of AI soldiers that don't have uh, human values in them. And, uh, and so, you know, aren't restrained. Like if you try and get human soldiers to do something, you know, really negative, uh, there's a sort of internal restraint that, that uh, human soldiers, you know, w- w- will impose their own morality. Um, you don't necessarily have that with AI systems. And so we could be entering into a new kind of warfare um, and uh, and how to manage that on a global scale uh, is is going to be one of the challenges. I know in Europe there's a a big effort to stop um, autonomous lethal weapons, you know, robot soldiers that can uh, kill kill on their own. Um, but what kind of teeth does that kind of a uh, a decree have uh, in any case? Yeah, I think you look at the, uh, you know, so many societal norms are made with certain assumptions that we're all humans here, we can all appeal to each other's humanity, and we know our limitations, and those assumptions go right out the window, and we don't know what to be afraid of. Uh, but as far as this, this, uh, the safe AI scaffolding strategy, the third part, I, w- I want to make sure I understand what it's going for. Uh, it sounds like a decentralized network where you have worldwide people are able to opt in when it is basically deemed safe and or I guess you can define as ethical. Is that is that basically what happened? A network would make its own rules for what is kind of personhood within this, this network, or is that not really what uh, is? No, no, no. It's something much, much simpler, much more concrete, which is um, uh, one of the interesting things is that um, to have a policeman monitoring uh, a group, the policeman does not have to be as smart as the group. The policeman can know the precise rules. If you are speeding on this freeway, I can arrest you, that kind of thing. And so um, potentially we can have uh, a, a safe infrastructure that will prevent uh, uh, systems you know, do, doing a certain set of bad things uh, using systems which are, first of all, trustable and very reliable. And they don't necessarily have to be as smart as the systems that they are trying to control. And so, um, uh, so that's that's the goal is to create a an infrastructure within which, um, you know, and we don't just necessarily have to deal with AI. We also have um, biotech is coming along. You know, the, the, somebody uh, published the smallpox virus on the internet. So you know, and it's pretty easy to, to crank out DNA, and we're getting to the point where you can insert that DNA into something. So somebody could recreate smallpox, um, not in the not too distant future. Um, and so clearly we need to regulate the kinds of manufacturing tools that would be used in that. Well, what kind of regulation could we have? That would be a part of this infrastructure, which would only allow the construction of biological um, you know, cells that, that were not uh, deemed pathogenic. Similarly for nanotech, uh, similarly for you know, military robots, similarly for you know, drone behavior. Um, all of these things are things that... Uh, need to be con- are going to need to be controlled. Um, the, the the controls um, can't be super intelligent things that are going to cause problems themselves, but they need to be smart enough to detect um, the things which could lead to bad bad outcomes. And um, so the way I see the safe AI scaffolding strategy is that we build this uh, very solid, reliable infrastructure that um, prevents people sort of on their own doing things which might ultimately be unsafe, uh, and that that infrastructure, of course, has to be improved, but we do it in an incremental way where at each stage um, we're very confident that, uh, that it's safe and that the system itself is not going to cause problems. So what, one more thing that you've, you've talked about is something called the resource balance principle, and this is a way that it's about you know, balancing resources uh, and, and uses... Uh, based upon overall marginal utility uh, that resource allocation would would result, would you like to talk any more about what what this would entail and what the reasoning is behind it? Uh, sure. Um, it's a sort of a principle that tries to kind of unify um, things that show up in biology, in uh, ecology, in uh, economics, in manufacturing, which is that um, in a, you know in an ecosystem, if one it may seem like the lions are doing better than the antelope because the lions eat the antelope. But in fact, 
um, the uh, over the long long term, the 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 success of being the predator and the success of being the prey is actually exactly the same. And that if it's not, the forces of ecology tend to sort of move things so that they get better. Similarly, in a biological system, you know, um, in the design of a human being, you had to you have to decide how much resources to give to the lungs and how much to the brain. And let's say um, a variant of humans came along which, you know, gave way more to the lungs. So those humans could climb big mountains and so on, but less to the brain. If that was not really better for, for the human, then, then evolution would sort of naturally rebalance them. Similarly, if you're in a drugstore, uh, every bit of shelf space uh, in general, produce, uh, produces the same amount of profits. And if it doesn't, if so- something is you know, generating more profits than it should, well, you should give that thing more shelf space. And so sort of it's a ge- just a general principle of optimization uh, of, a, of a system is that each piece should be contributing on average the same amount of utility. And um, uh, those same principles and same ideas apply in building software systems. You know, how much should you optimize each part of a program? Uh, well, you should do it in such a way that uh, the total amount of resources used uh, and the benefit that they provide uh, is exactly the same for each piece, same for AI systems. So it's just a, uh, one of a number of very general principles that describe how sort of intelligent systems uh, that are trying to optimize their use of a set of resources, uh, how they should, uh, what they should look like. And when you talk about the utility of, of the system as a whole, uh, how do you, how are you able to kind of uh, align this with a decentralized system of, of cooperation? Um, it's yeah. I guess historically, how do you think of the challenges of decentralized cooperation, and what do you think future uh, ways to address decentralized cooperation might be? Yeah, I think that is the. In some sense, that's the central question. Um, that uh, as we get very much more powerful entities, AIs or AI human hybrids or humans with neural lace hooked up to AI, whatever whatever it is, or groups that are sort of you know working together. Um, you, we want them to cooperate together, and it's sort of one of the great challenges that's been addressed both by biology and by economics of how do you get a collection of self-interested entities to cooperate with one another. And, um, but, you know, humanity has, has developed a number of solutions. Early on, we got the moral emotions, the sort of structure of groups. Uh, some people are arguing that human language developed as a means of uh, allowing groups to cooperate in that if somebody behaved in an antisocial way, uh, other people could use language to gossip about them and say, can you believe Joe just stole my food and ate it? And blah, blah, blah. And so um, uh, part of the whole driver development of what made humans special was our solution to that issue of cooperation. And then as we grew bigger and we developed agriculture and we got cities, then we had to develop laws and money and police forces, and that enabled us to cooperate on a much larger scale. And I think as we move into this new era with intelligent systems and AIs and robots and so on, we're going to need new rules of cooperation. And uh, I think the underlying game theory is, you know, very similar to each level. The technological implementation of it, I think, is going to require uh, these new technologies like the cryptographic technologies, the perhaps blockchain, blockchain-like technologies, um, mathematical proof. All those are tools which enable us to build an infrastructure in which uh, each individual has to feel like it is in their personal interest to cooperate uh, rather than defect and uh, you know uh, sort of act purely for their own own interests. So, as far as resource allocation and the blockchain, what's the overall pitch on what, how can the blockchain uh, work to help solve this problem? So, blockchain is really um, just a a tool for a bunch of entities who don't know one another and don't trust one another to cooperate and. Um, the current blockchains are based, sort of the underlying integrity is based on, on something called proof of work, which is a very expensive and kind of wasteful mechanism. It's estimated that um, Bitcoin in the next few years is going to burn up as much electricity every year as Denmark. Um, and it's wasting the electricity for use, it's solving useless puzzles. That's the, and the puzzles have to be useless because that's the way that it sort of guarantees that there, there's integrity. Uh, and it goes up into the atmosphere and it you know, contributes to global warming and all this kind of stuff. So the current mechanisms are clumsy in a, in a sort of uh, overall sense. But the fact that they work at all is quite remarkable. And um, it enables, you know, uh, unfortunately, who needs 
a, a system where people who don't know one another and don't trust one another can interact. Well, a lot of it is illegal activity. And so like the Silk Road was an early example of, you know, people were selling drugs and using Bitcoin as their means of payment and the, uh, the dark web and Tor as their mechanism for communication. Um, and so in some sense, that was an antisocial um, activity. But the fact that it worked showed that um, it didn't require the entities involved to um, know one another, uh, to, to, to trust one another uh, outside, of the, outside of the system. And so it's an example of a system where, by, uh, w- with a set of rules that enable um, these probably antisocial agents to interact with one another in a way that is ultimately cooperative. When you talk about the waste we have now with the blockchain and proof of work, is that not a fundamental part of of how blockchain operates? Is it possible to have blockchains that don't have uh, inherent waste? Well, that's a really good question. Um, There are a lot of people thinking about it, and a number of – so proof of work is um, the way that that, – so blockchain is basically just a big ledger, and every 10 minutes a new block of transactions gets added to that ledger. The problem is that different people may want to put different blocks on there, and you may want to send the same money to two different people and sort of subvert the system. Uh, and so the way that that's prevented is you have these blockchain miners. And interestingly, most of the blockchain miners are in China right now, and they have to solve these hard cryptographic puzzles that burn up a lot of electricity uh, in order to earn the right to put the block on. And so it prevents you from making a whole bunch of copies of yourself, the so-called Sybil attack, um, because to do so, you'd have to burn even more electricity. And so the, the waste, in some sense, is absolutely intrinsic to the current blockchain. The people of um, Ethereum is talking about switching. Ethereum also uses uh, proof-of-work, but they're thinking of moving to a proof-of-stake system where basically the entire group of participants vote on what the next block should be, and the vote is weighted by how much Ethereum you own. Now, if you just did it that way, that would be vulnerable to corruption because somebody could just buy a bunch of Ethereum, uh, you know, enough to, to overwhelm the voting process and then, uh, you know, make choices that, that favored them in a way and then sell all their Ethereum. So they've thought through very complicated um, game theoretic analyzed ways of trying to make this proof of stake work. And they're talking about switching over to it. Um, I'm a little skeptical. It'll be very interesting to see. There, there's quite you know, as we're discovering in, in the developments of blockchain, blockchain right now is going through a, uh, I mean, uh, Bitcoin is right now going through a challenge of uh, wanting to expand the size of, of blocks, but there are groups that want it and groups that don't, and they have no mechanism for governance. They have no way of allowing people to on the blockchain vote for that. And so it becomes this social process that is very ill-defined. And so uh, I actually think that's great because that shows us the importance of having a clearly defined mechanism by which a system can upgrade itself. And so I think we're learning very valuable uh, lessons by watching the development of these systems. I don't think in their current form they are really suitable for what we're ultimately going to need, but I think they they are exploring some of the important territory. Um, There are are a whole bunch of other uh, potential mechanisms also that um, maybe, I mean, I ultimately think that we should really have a very low-cost system um, today, you can do that if you trust somebody. So, like, if you trust the United States government, you could have the United States government be the keeper of the blockchain, and now you wouldn't need proof of work or any of that stuff. But, um, you know, but governments have not proven themselves very, very trustable. And so, um, uh, and so, so, so that's part of our issue as we go forward. Um, you know, do we want to trust individual politicians? Probably not. They are corruptible. They're blackmailable. Do we want to trust our particular governments? Probably not. They are also manipulable. And so uh, how do we create an infrastructure that um, enables trust, particularly when we have these entities which are much smarter than us, probably, and um, maybe you don't even really know what their values are. And so, so that, that's the, the, you know, the world that we're sort of you know, moving our way into, and I think uh, it, we need as many people as possible thinking about, you know, first of all, what do we want that future world to look like? Um, I like to use the Maslow hierarchy of human needs as a sort of guide for what are the features of that world, and then how do you actually technically implement it in a way that's not subvertible by uh, special interests. 
Well, one concern that pops into my head, to throw one more in, when you're talking about proof of stake, I guess I immediately think of what has traditionally been a proof of stake in far as like voting. Uh, historically, it's been if you're a landowner, you have stake in, in society, yeah. you're able to vote. And it sounds like the same kind of oppression that happens with feudal systems of the landed have a voice and the others don't. Uh, yeah. How do you make sure you don't have a kind of a class-based uh, oppression that happens in something like this? Very interesting question. In some sense, markets, economic markets, are a voting system where your vote is weighted by your wealth. Um, And as you say, that uh, is not an equitable system because the wealthy get more say in what happens, right? You know, the wealthy determine what things get manufactured by because they buy them. Uh, And so the whole idea of voting is sort of a, you know, one person, one vote. Um, One of the the issues that uh, Bitcoin is trying to deal with is there's no notion of personhood. Um, you can have as many Bitcoin identities as you like. They're all pseudonymous, and they're all done by public key cryptography. And in an AI world, if an AI wants to create a million offspring, they, they do it in an instant, right? And so the notion of personhood is not something that we have uh, in an AI world. And so, um, you know, the, the U.S. has, has uh, this sort of funny balance where, like, a strict democracy would be one person, one vote. And then you say, well, but not children. We don't want children to vote. And, uh, oh, not criminals. Maybe criminals don't get to vote. You know, but, you know so you sort of uh, you know, have to deal with what exactly is a citizen in some sense. Um, and, um, but, but the founding fathers were, were scared to death of democracy. They felt like, oh, my God, like you said, tyranny of the majority. They might like, vote, them, vote themselves, pay, you know, pay me money, basically, is, is the thing. And so they developed this representative democracy where, uh, yeah, they get to vote, but they don't get to vote on the policies. They get to vote on these guys, and then those guys vote on the policies. And, well, but now you've introduced you know, another uh, level of uncertainty and a lot of room for corruption and, and manipulation there. Even when you do have uh, one vote, one person, and you're not dealing with AI making millions of offspring, uh, there are some mathematical limits to, to voting as well. I mean, uh, like if you, if you take into account like Arrow's paradox, right? So uh, yeah. are there any interesting things happening? And <laughs> I guess in the realm of math, because, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to me to be a perfect voting system, even if you, you know, even if you could implement it through blockchain yeah. or whatever system that you want to use. That's totally true. The one really tragic thing is um, I have some friends that are involved with this uh, Center for Election Science, and uh, there has been a lot of analysis. You know, there are a bunch of different possible voting systems. Um, ours is sort of first past the post voting. That you know, we have a number of candidates, and the one that gets the highest number of votes wins. The problem with that is third parties take away votes from the the mainstream candidate that's closest to them, and so it basically forces uh, the system into a two party uh, two party system, and it uh, eliminates a lot of discussion of sort of alternative ways of going. Uh, my friends who've done math, they've done these big Monte Carlo analyses of different voting systems. Our voting system in the United States is absolutely the worst in terms of reflecting what the populace actually wants. And there are really simple changes, something called range voting, uh, that would improve our voting system a lot. Um, and then uh, beyond that, making bigger changes, that quadratic voting I mentioned uh, is, is, uh, um, makes even more benefit. And then ultimately, I would like to see something that I call semantic voting. Like today, you know, somebody decides on these two policies. Should we have a $1 billion bond bill? Should we have no bond bill? Or should we have a $2 billion bond bill? So I get to pick one of those three. Well, maybe I have a subtler idea about how it should go. I should be allowed to express exactly what it is I want and why. And you should have some smart system which can aggregate everybody's detailed semantic opinion about everything and form a sort of combined opinion that uh, much better reflects the values of the participants. To ask a, a big question, I mean, I guess historically what has been kind of considered one man, one vote, it's not proof of stake, it's not proof of work, it really is like proof of dignity. Uh, and in a world where there is no kind of way to prove dignity, it isn't really what you can do to outmatch AI, there's not something you can do to, you know, out-own AI, uh, and how could you even satisfy what you say, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're competing against uh, you know, a, a million or just uncountable uh, artificial intelligences, 
how can you ever have the resources to get along if if your dignity uh, is basically infinitesimal in, in this pool? Yeah, so that's, I think, a great argument that we don't, you know, we're building the system right now, It's and I would say that we are the beneficiaries of it, and we should not build it so that, um, you know, it's one AI, one vote, because, uh, like you say, um, in that system, game theoretically, your best strategy is to spawn a million copies of yourself, over, overwhelm the system, and vote in whatever policies you want. Um, that I think we, I would say, being human-centric, and there, surprisingly there are those who are not, um, that we should be structuring the system to uh, provide the greatest benefit using something like Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, in some of my talks I've been giving, you know, Maslow's hierarchy starts with sort of a physiological level, you know, humans need uh, food, water, shelter, and then a safety level, you know, you need to feel like you're not going to get shot on your way to work or whatever. Uh, you need um, a social level where you want friends and uh, family and relationships. You need an esteem level where you're contributing, you're doing something that you actually feel good about. Uh, a level where um, self-actualization, where you can express something that's sort of burning inside your heart, and then a few people have this sort of self-transcendent level. And each of those is going to be impacted by AI systems. And at each level, the impact can either be positive or negative, depending on how we structure things. And so I would say that um, we need to create systems to ensure that we're on the positive side so that uh, that humans are the beneficiary of this new technology in some sense that we're building uh, and that abstractions like, well, but AI should be voting also, uh, take second fiddle to uh, ensuring that, that humans uh, are, are the best beneficiaries. That's my personal vote. <laughs> well, even, uh, okay, even if we say, yes, let's look out for humans, um, I... I have to say I am concerned uh, about AIs taking advantage over other AIs um, yeah. if there aren't good rules in place. And I, you know, they, they may just find us to be a funny little footnote on their, you know, historical butts. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they could create a really catastrophic situation for us if they're fighting each other, <laughs> right? Uh, so I was just going to say, I don't know if you've heard about Cambridge Analytica. It's a, yeah. a British company that uh, tries – it uses simple AI to build personality models of voters, and they target messages, uh, personalized messages to each individual voter uh, in elections in an attempt to sway elections. And they are taking credit for the Trump win, for the Brexit win, and for some Australian uh, elections. Now, there's controversy over really, whether they really did it or not, whatever. But I think the, the issue is, is a big one, that, um, uh, you know, we are manipulable. And if you have an AI that knows your preferences and your values and everything, it can uh, show, you know, show you things and, and uh, uh, give you things that will sway you one way or another. And what do we do about that, you know? <laughs> So we're we're wrapping up uh, short on time at the end of the show. I guess just big picture, the people who are just extremely, extremely optimistic, no concern at all of, of over AI. I just I just don't understand at all. Personally, I'm just filled with dire pessimism. <laughs> like I just feel, uh, you know, it's it's going to be bad, no matter what. Let's see how bad it's going to be. What what would be the best pitch on why I shouldn't feel? just absolute 100% dread? Why Why should I, uh, what should I uh, think to scale back a bit? Well, I mean, at the, at the place we're at at this moment, uh, almost all the participants who are building these systems are building them for uh, human needs. You know, there are companies trying to make your products better. They are, um, you know, uh, academic labs trying to improve medical diagnosis. Uh, and so I would say Virtually everything going on right now, except maybe for some some of the military uses or something like that, uh, is really for the betterment of humanity. And um, that uh, as we look forward, like you say, there's a lot of, you know, we're, there are many forking paths. Uh, on the good side, there are lots of people starting to become aware of these issues, and there are a whole bunch of possible um, solutions to it. And, uh, you know, we're very, very early in this path, I would say. Um, uh, you know, people were, have only really been talking seriously about techniques for AI safety and beneficial AI for, you know, a decade or two, something like that. And so, um, and so I think that there's – and then once the systems start getting smarter, we can enroll them in, in these tasks. 
um, you know, the early AI systems that can do good simulations of societies and economies and stuff like that, uh, we can figure out, well, what's the impact of this choice, this choice, or that choice? And so, um, and, you know, humanity has been remarkably robust. We've been through a lot of stuff. 70,000 years ago, we were down to just 5,000 people, the latest uh, DNA evidence is showing. So we almost went extinct. We're like almost nothing. And now we're, what, seven, eight billion, eight billion people all over every, every landmass on the planet. And so we are a very robust species who have found a way. And um, so this may very well be one of our greatest challenges. But uh, I, I actually am very optimistic that um, – uh, if we bring our values and our intellect to this issue, that um, we can actually create a society which is far better for uh, humanity than today's world is. Well, we've been in conversation with Steve Mohundro, uh talking about the challenges and rewards of the future of AI and <laughs> decentralized systems to stay safe and, and thrive. Uh, this has been the Harry George Program here on KCSU Stanford. You can find previous episodes and learn more about earthsharing.org at the website, seethecat.org.